0: Somewhere around this time, this month, in 1971, John Lennon uh, was writing a song, the most popular song, the best-selling song of his solo career. Does anybody know what it is? Imagine, Imagine that's right. It, it, it's ended up being one of the most recorded songs of the 20th century. Uh, Rolling Stone ranked it as the third greatest song of all time. Over 200 musicians have covered it, and it's been sung at the beginning of two of our recent Olympic Games. Since 2005, the organizers of the New Year's, ball, New Year's Eve ball drop in New York City uh, have played the song right before the ball drops. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when he was president, commented that as he traveled around the world, he heard this song more in countries, than countries' own national anthems. And it, it's, it's clear that it resonates, right? It's striking a chord. It's this song where Lennon is asking us, John Lennon is asking us to imagine and to dream of a world of peace. And it's a wonderful dream. Now, in the song, as you well know, we get to peace... By eliminating the borders of countries and personal possessions and religion. The first verse, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. Um, And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Now, what Lenin has captured is a very popular belief. And it's the belief that as societies modernize, as they grow in technology and education, as they become more advanced and more scientific, religion declines. And he's inviting the world that's still captured by religion to join us, to join those of us like he and others. Now, this idea that as we grow more advanced, as we develop more scientific knowledge, as we escape the dark ages, this idea that Peace will evolve, progress will occur, and religion will decline. That's the air we all breathe today. It's what all of us are being indoctrinated into at school. It's the idea that religion and religious values are oppressive. That what Christianity says about sexuality, for example, is backwards. And that it's okay to be a Christian if your posture is going to be, this is my truth. It's okay for Christianity to be true for you. But don't say that every single human being must convert to Christianity regardless of their cultural background or current beliefs. Because that's arrogant and offensive. This is the air we breathe. It's the myth of religious violence, the myth that it's religion that fuels violence. Think about how how ironic it is that modern society says religions breed violence, but who dropped the atomic bomb, a religion or a government? Who has killed more people, governments or religions, since we ended the wars of religion? See, the irony is that government has said religious extremism leads to violence. Stop, and we'll be less violent. And now, it's okay to die for your country. But if you die for your religion, you're an extremist. Why does dying for your country make you a a patriot? But dying for your religion make you ignorant? Do you see the irony? The government has said religion leads to violence, we lead to peace. All the while, it's just monopolized the cause of death. There's this myth that religion stifles free thought and subjugates women and that the way to peace is to get rid of full-bloodied religion and to get calm religion. Let's water it down into a kind of love wins. Everybody's going to be okay if we just stop judging each other and let each person speak their own truth. That's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. It's what makes the most sense to us deep in our guts. It's the worldview of our society. And it is so deep in us. It's so basic that it's the natural assumptions in any given discussion. And the funny thing is, this rejection of religion is fueled by white Western prejudice. It's an act of elitism. It's the assumption that the rest of the world is going to follow the White West. As white Westerners get educated and leave religion, so will everybody else. It is hard to find a non-white atheist in the world today. Atheism is bourgeois. It's elitist. It's It's this idea that as the rest of the world modernizes, it will modernize the way Western Europeans have modernized into secularism. And when the rest of the world grows up into our level of education and wealth and sophistication, it will leave behind its primitive ways. That's the water we swim in. In our gospel this morning, Jesus is standing in front of us and he says, that's the broad way. That's the easy way. Enter by the narrow way. Enter, he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus stands in front of our secular age, and he says, I am the way. And who is this that says, I am the way to us? It is the lonely man who died forsaken on the cross. He is the one who says, no one can come to the Father except by me. Jesus says, through him, through the most lonely and despised of men, the man of sorrows and death, crowned with thorns and spat upon, this is the narrow gate, this is the narrow way, this is the way, this is the only way. Now, What does it mean for us this morning to stand and see that man Before us, saying these words to us, four things. First of all, as we hear Jesus say, enter by the narrow gate, he is telling us, you must make a decision to go through this gate. You don't stumble through this gate. The flow of the crowd doesn't take you through this gate. He's telling us you can't just go with the flow. A person can't just jog along with their friends in the flow of their daily work and the routine of living their life. You can't just go to school and make a bit of money and enjoy a bit of good food and find a career with purpose. You must decide for Jesus. You must make a decision. You can't be complacent about Jesus. You have to seek him. You have to deliberately choose him. You must forsake every obstacle in the way of this tiny, narrow gate. You have to make a clear choice for Jesus. And second, the second thing it means when Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow gate is that not only does he demand a decision, he's showing us that the decision involves separating yourself from the broad. Path from the crowd. You see, we humans tend to live according to the law of least resistance. And in this passage, Jesus calls the path of least resistance the wide, easy path. Jesus is trying to startle us. He's saying to us, You can't just go with the flow, you have to make a choice to step onto this path. This path is easily missed, you miss the exit. Just caught up in the flow of the traffic. You simply cannot just let yourself go wandering through life because there really is destruction on either side. Jesus is telling us it is often much more comfortable to not be a Christian. The comfortable life is the easy, love wins, everybody's going to be okay. Keep your truth to yourself life. That's the broad path. And it's way more comfortable on that path in our society right now. Think about all the times that you struggled to really commit yourself to the Christian belief. All the times that saying the truth as the Bible teaches us. All the times that you have resisted that because of how difficult it was. It can be much easier to get through this life and this world without the hard edges of Christianity. You can get farther ahead in Harrisonburg. You can get along more easily at Harrisonburg High School. You can experience much less suffering at James Madison University. If you just stay on the broad path, the easy path. And if right at the start, what you want in life is success and ease, then you're way in the left lane and the exit's coming by on the right and you're going to miss it. You see, Jesus at first always comes to us with resistance. Our first encounter with Jesus, at first it is uncomfortable and inconvenient and Jesus' first word to most of us is stop. That's what he's doing. He's standing here and saying Stop. To find your way home to God, to straighten out your life with God, you have to be willing to entrust yourself completely to Jesus and let him lead you down an utterly new adventure. And to do this, you must be willing to part ways, not only with a way of life, but with people. This is what Jesus is telling us in verses 15 through 23. Matthew 7, 15 to 23. He's telling you to watch out for all those people lining the broad path that you love that are saying to you, stay with us. He says in verses 16 to 20, there are actions of those people that you need to see. He says in verses 21 to 23, pay attention to their words. You see, there are plenty of people, plenty of friends, plenty of family and role models and people we love to spend time with who stand on that wide, easy path and say, this is it, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. And here is Jesus, the lonely man, standing in another narrow gate saying, that's not the way. One time Jesus even said, you must be prepared to leave even your father and mother and you must be prepared to be hated, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus means carrying a cross. It means persecution and being misunderstood and disliked. And the more seriously you take Jesus, the more of that you're going to get. To walk down the wide and easy path, all you have to do is just go with the flow. Just tag along with others and you'll simply be carried along to destruction. But to have life, real life, the life that your creator and savior offers you. To find the narrow gate, you have to intentionally go against the grain. And this will lead to a thousand deaths. It will lead to a thousand separations from a thousand paths and people we love. And even sometimes from the people we love the most. And that brings us to the third issue. Loneliness. This gate is so narrow, you have to go through it all by yourself. That's how narrow it is. In Matthew 17, 7, verse 13, when Jesus commands, enter by the narrow gate, it means there is the only way home to God is to part from others and to stand all alone. The great in the kingdom of God all had to go through blood and tears and terrible loneliness. Loneliness. Jesus is not with the masses. He's not with the crowds. He avoided them. And he went to the people who were lonely and forsaken in their guilt and their need. The people who really could not help him to win the world and organize campaigns on a big and broad scale. There is no smooth sailing to Jesus. If you're to be a Christian, the only way to be a Christian is to stand alone before God. Jesus is the way to the Father and he is a narrow gate, a narrow way and to step onto his path he requires a decision and separation. He requires death and loneliness. Think about the people in the Gospels when we read them, whom Jesus calls away from their fields and oxen and from their newly married wives. He requires them to leave their business and their work and their vocation and everything that filled their minds and imaginations. And Jesus said, leave it, leave it all. Imagine how lonely that is. That's a lonely thing. Imagine how lonely it made them to step away. But it was when they stepped into that loneliness that they met Jesus. Think about all the people who were ill that Jesus called out to. If you've ever experienced real illness, physical or mental illness, it is terrifyingly lonely. It it tyrannizes you into an isolation. Suffering drives us into being alone. And in the Bible, when we read the Gospels, we see those suffering from illness step out of the crowd and make their way alone to the Savior. And then think about the publicly shamed sinners, the adulterers, and the thieves. That meet with Jesus. Think about how lonely their guilt made them. Sin has such a horrible power to isolate us. You know this. I know this. And so these people. They too stand alone before the eyes of Jesus. And he is there for them. Completely available to each and every one. As if that particular broken and shamed person. Was the only lost soul in the whole wide world. And then there are the people in the Gospels who it's not their illness and it's not their sin that isolates them. It's their problems. Their intellectual doubts and confusions. Think about Nicodemus, for example, who comes secretly in the night. Nobody understands him anymore. Those of us who struggle with doubt and unanswered questions, the tension inside of us and the confusion and our skepticism, it isolates us. How many of you have ever thought My friends don't understand me. My parents don't know the way things really are inside of me. In the Gospels, we find this kind of person, solitary, isolated. And Jesus has time for them, alone, personally. He has time and love and concern. And that's where he meets them. There's this amazing story in Luke chapter 5 where some guys have a friend who's paralyzed. He spends his life laying on a cot. And they take him to meet Jesus. And Jesus is so surrounded by a crowd. He's in a house. Does anybody know what they do? They carry him up to the roof and dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. Because nobody will get out of the way, right? Um, It's like everybody's crowded around. So you climb up on a ladder and jump down right in front of the person that you want to talk to. And there's this moment in the story where the paralyzed man and Jesus, the divine physician are suddenly completely alone in the midst of the crowd. The crowd and the man's friends are pressing in on them, but all of it fades away, and there is Jesus... For that man and that man alone, and if, as if there weren't millions of others in the world, but this one man, this one tormented human being is worth enough to Jesus that Jesus gives him his entire attention and all of his compassion. And Jesus gives himself fully to this one man. And it's the same for you and me. You must go through the lonely, personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus. He is the narrow gate. There's only room for you and him in that gate. And if you do not go through the lonely personal encounter with Jesus, you will not find the narrow way. You must stand and talk alone with him. Now, you might say, well... That's really hard, Aubrey, because he's invisible. How do I know? I hear people all the time talking about I prayed and Jesus said this, but how do you know when Jesus is actually there in front of you, confronting you, inviting you into the narrow gate? He's invisible. How do I feel him? How do I know him? Don't all of us feel the terrible heavy weight of silence when we pray? Even those of us Who want to experience the presence of God. How elusive it is. So how do we know this moment that's so necessary? Well, first of all, let me say, if you are waiting for a feeling that Jesus is with you when you pray, you will be disappointed. Don't get me wrong. Some people definitely feel God. But feeling God typically happens not when you're trying to feel God. Meeting Jesus alone doesn't begin with a feeling of Jesus. It begins with the decision to enter by the narrow gate. You see, some people love intervarsity on Friday night. Or Young Life Camp. Or the wonderful singing in a church. But you can hide in those mass experiences. And just let yourself be carried along on a wave of religion under the spell of a large gathering of Christians. But even a church service, even a great night of worship can be the wide and easy path if you merely want a religious thrill, if you want to let yourself be carried along and uplifted in a tingling religious experience, the exciting atmosphere of a crowd, you're not on the narrow way. Here's the catch. If, however, in the midst of a worship service, one word hits home, And causes you to say, he's talking to me. How did he know that? He's talking to me alone. This touches the deepest chasm in my life. That man up there can't possibly know about this. How does he know about my secret sin, my terrible habit that keeps me from finding peace? Or if you suddenly find yourself thinking, wow, this song or this sermon or this prayer is like a balm poured into my wounds, my secret misery, my deep, dark despair. Everybody else can just go on singing or listening or praying, but this has struck me Right into my heart, that moment, you are alone before Jesus. A bolt of divine lightning has struck the ground in front of you, you and it has suddenly lit up the dark landscape of your life if we're all praying the Lord's Prayer together, and and when we all say, forgive us our sins, you suddenly find yourself not thinking about the guilt and the forgiveness and the wickedness of everybody else in the room, but you suddenly realize that you are caught up in your guilt, yours alone, your own utterly personal sin, and you know very well that you have to carry that to the gate. Then you can be sure that Christ is present. He is before you. He is speaking to you, telling you that your sins are forgiven. Your sins. Not the sins of the room, not the sins of the world, but yours and yours alone. I'll I'll conclude with this story. I think it helps us to stop and hear Jesus. I learned it from a a wonderful little book by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. The book is called Confronting Christianity, the subtitle, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. She's a, she's, she was born in England. Uh, she lives in, I think she lives in D.C. now. She received a Ph.D. from Cambridge in English literature. And so she tells the story of one of the classic Russian novels. The novel Eugene Onegin*. It's by Alexander Pushkin. The novel it's um, one of these like poet novels, like what's that uh, anyway, and it tells, it tells about this guy named Eugene Onigan, and he's a jaded and bored aristocrat his His life is just filled with fancy parties and like the uh, Jane Austen style, okay. <laughs> And one day he inherits this uh, huge country place from an uncle that died or something. And he's there in the country and he meets this innocent young country girl. And the girl, Tatiana, writes him a letter. Well, the girl, Tatiana, she falls in love with him immediately. She's smitten by him. And she writes him a letter and she offers him her love. But on again, this uh, jaded, bored aristocrat He doesn't even reply to the letter. One day they meet again. And uh, she begs him. And he just turns her down. He tells her her letter was touching in a condescending way. And he tells her, but to be honest with you, Tatiana, being married to you, quite frankly, would be boring. Years later, Onegin goes to a party in St. Petersburg and he sees this stunningly beautiful woman. And it's Tatiana. But now she's married to someone else. And would you know. On again falls in love with her. And he begs her. He tries desperately to win her back. But Tatiana refuses him. Once the door was opened. But now it's shut. When you are in the wide easy path of our culture it is easy to imagine Jesus will bore you like Tatiana's letter to Onigan. his letter can be touching we can come to church on Sundays like this and look at his offer a bit condescendingly because we believe we'll be happier Without that commitment. We worry that he will cramp our style. So we move on with life. And we leave him in the spiritual countryside. But one day. This passage tells us. One day. We will see Jesus in all of his glory. And our eyes. Will be open to his beauty. And we will know in that moment that all our greatest treasures were nothing compared with him. And we will bitterly reject, resent and regret our decision. And it will be no more unfair of him to say it's too late than it was unfair of Tatiana to say it's too late. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is saying stop and decide. And we're all faced with that choice. Will we accept Jesus now? If we do, we will live with him forever in a fullness of life that we cannot imagine. If we reject him, he will one day reject us and we will be eternally devastated. And it will be fair and the choice is yours. Let's pray.